The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 139 Israel Wars Against Judah Instead of having faith in God, King Menahem of Israel had agreed to pay a massive yearly tribute to the Assyrians, putting a great financial burden on the northern tribes for years to come. In Judah, however, the prosperous rule of King Uzziah continued into the reign of Jotham his son. Jotham's reign was a bright period in Judah's history, in part thanks to the positive upbringing he had received. From a young age, the crown prince had been trained by his parents to be obedient to God and trust in his ways. It's likely his father was humbled after God struck him down with leprosy for entering the temple. Uzziah realized he had sinned, so God allowed him to live and advise his son on how to become a righteous king. Jotham's mother, Jerusha, the daughter of a priest of the line of Zadok, trained him to behave like one of God's servants. Jotham was 25 years old when his father died, and he assumed complete power. By that time, he was ready to exercise God's rule on earth. Jotham chose to follow God rather than lean to his own understanding. As soon as he became king, he initiated a massive building program in Jerusalem and Judah, continuing on from his father before him. God was pleased and blessed his great building projects and gave him victories in warfare. Even though Jotham was a righteous leader, many in Judah refused to worship God properly. Many people still bowed down to idols upon the hills of Judah. Still, Jotham was able to accomplish much in building up the nation. The area surrounding the Holy Temple in Jerusalem was Jotham's first priority. He assembled his engineers to assess what needed to be done. When they realized that the northern gate of the temple compound was extremely unsafe, Jotham had it torn down and completely replaced. The Ophel Wall, around the northeast part of the city, needed to be reinforced as well. City walls in ancient times were constructed differently from what we might think, because nations were continuously at war with their neighbors. Each city was built as a fortress, not just a place where people live. In the case of Jerusalem, many of its inhabitants lived in the farmland surrounding the city. The people visited the city when they had goods to sell, for official business, or for religious worship. People also flocked into the city when a foreign army was attacking. It was important that the city wall was not only high, but also very thick in order to withstand the blows of massive battering rams intended to weaken it. In order to strengthen the defensive position of Jerusalem, Jotham built up the city wall, making it thicker and taller. He also attached buildings to the interior of the city wall to provide extra strength against attack. Once Jerusalem was repaired and strengthened, 
Jotham surveyed the hilly country of Judah and realized he needed more walled cities to protect the growing population. He had recently witnessed the massive Assyrian army under King Tiglath-Pileser, also known as Pul, force Israel to pay an enormous tribute, and he knew the Assyrians would be back. In the northern borderlands between Israel and Judah, he constructed tall observation towers to warn of approaching armies. Once his territory was secure, King Jotham went on the offensive against the Ammonites in the east. He amassed a sizable army and crossed over the Jordan River. The Judean army quickly overpowered the Ammonites and demanded a large tribute of silver, wheat, and barley. The Ammonites controlled the strategic roadway between the Red Seaport of Elath in the south and Damascus in the north. Trade through their territory had guaranteed them much wealth. But now, because of Jotham's righteous rule, God saw to it that their extra wealth flowed into Judah. As long as Jotham was in charge, God blessed the small nation of Judah. His prosperous reign in Judah stands in contrast to the dwindling standard of living experienced by the northern tribes during the reign of King Pekah. Jotham's rule only lasted a short 16 years. His death at 41 years of age marked a turning point for Judah, a turn for the worse. Ahaz, Jotham's son, was 20 years old when he began to rule Judah. Although barely a man, he thought he knew better than to follow his father's example. King Ahaz, also known as Jehoaz, quickly forbade the proper temple proceedings from taking place. He commanded the workers of brass and iron to create statues of Baal to worship. Instead of keeping God's holy days, Ahaz copied the pagan religious rites of the surrounding nations, such as sacrificing children. The blessings Judah had received under King Jotham soon vanished. To punish Ahaz for returning Judah to sin, God sent armies from Rezin of Syria and Pekah of Israel. Judah still had a sizable military force left over from the time of Jotham. In the first battle, Syria's army descended south toward Judah. Ahaz's army was swiftly defeated, and a great multitude of Jews were taken to Damascus as slaves. Shortly after, God allowed the northern tribes of Israel to push southward toward Jerusalem. Ahaz sent out his remaining forces to battle against the Israelite tribes. After one day of fighting, Judah lost 120,000 men. This battle between God's two nations ended with 200,000 women and children taken as captives and forced to march north toward Samaria. This war between Israel and Judah is the first time the word Jews is used in the Bible. Many today believe that the words Jew and Israelite describe the same people. But this verse clearly describes a Jew as someone from the southern kingdom of Judah. While all Jews are Israelites in the sense that they are children of Israel, not all Israelites are Jews. This was a tragic time in the history of Israel. God never intended for his model nation to be divided or to war against one another. Now the northern tribes of Israel were bringing their own brothers into captivity. 
God was not pleased. Even though Ahaz was evil, God did not want the Jews to be servants to the Israelites. After the battle, Zikri, one of Pekah's mighty men and the commander of the Israelite army, led the captive Jews northward through the land of Benjamin. His army pillaged Judah's towns and homesteads along the way. Once the army reached Israelite territory, many Israelites lined the roadway to witness the stream of captives. Far from being happy with the new slave population, many wondered whether it was right for the Israelites to make slaves of the Jews. Nevertheless, Zikri continued his victorious march to Samaria. As the mass of civilization reached the city gates, one man ran to the center of the road, blocking the entrance into the city. What do you think you're doing? The man cried out to the leading horseman. Get out of the way, old man, before you hurt yourself, replied the soldier. Who do you think you are to stop the victorious army of Israel? I am Oded, a prophet of God, the man boldly proclaimed as a call of halt spread back through the army's lines. What you have done is far from being a victory. You have slain your brothers in a fit of rage, Oded declared. Don't you realize that God only lets you win the battle against the Jews because of the wickedness of Ahaz? Your victory was God's way of correcting the nation, and here you are gloating over your military prowess. How foolish! And now, the prophet continued, you intend to bring the women and children captive into our lands. That's exactly what we plan to do, responded Zikri, as he made his way to the front and overheard the prophet's comments. Now move aside, or we will move you. Zikri signaled to his lead officers to start moving forward on their horses. Just as the horses began to advance, a large group of men dressed in royal attire came through the city gate and stood behind Oded. Enough is enough, one of the men shouted as he stepped forward and grabbed the bridle of Zikri's horse. The men surrounding Oded were elders from the tribe of Ephraim, the lead tribe of the nation of Israel. We heard how you mercilessly attacked our brothers in Judah. One of the nobles of the tribe spoke up. You reveled in the killing of our own family. Because of this, you have brought God's anger upon our nation. Now you intend to add further to our sins by making their wives and children our slaves? I tell you, we will not allow it. The general was shocked by their words. Previously, the tribe of Ephraim had been one of the greatest supporters of the military's feats and conquests. But now the Ephraimites had changed their minds. Since King Pekah had not yet returned to Samaria, Zikri was outranked by the princess. Fine, Zikri responded grudgingly after a pause. What would you have me do with all these people? You are to leave these Jews right where they are. They have seen enough of you, Oded answered. You are also to leave all the spoil you stole from them and their families. Now command your army to stand down. Zikri relented. He commanded his captains to drop all their spoil. The soldiers then proceeded to leave the captives and make their way into Samaria, grumbling as they went. When the final soldier passed a group of Ephraimite elders, 200,000 dehydrated and gaunt women and children stood before them. They had not eaten for three days on their journey to Samaria. They were dusty and dirty, 
Some of them had no clothes. The elders of Israel quickly called upon their household servants to come and attend to the Jews. Some rushed out with large water containers and loaves of bread to feed the famished multitude. Local shoemakers placed shoes on the feet of those who had none. Clothing was sought from Samaria's merchants to attire them. Oded walked among the exhausted Jews, encouraging them that they would soon return home. After some time for recuperation, the elders of the tribe of Ephraim set out with the multitude to return them to Judah. Those who could no longer walk were put on donkeys or horses. After a few days, this time with regular food and water, the Jews made it back to the town of Jericho in the Jordan Valley, about 10 miles east of Jerusalem. The elders left the multitude there and then returned to Samaria to figure out what to do with their reckless King Pekah. The news of the returning women and children made it back to Ahaz. While pleased with the people's return, he didn't have time to celebrate. A confederacy was being formed to counter the mighty Assyrian Empire. The northern tribes of Israel, as well as Syria, Edom, Tyre, and the Philistines, had all decided to form an alliance against the mighty Assyrians. Before long, Judah was the only nation in the region that had not joined the anti-Assyrian alliance. This greatly angered the neighboring nations. Soon, the Edomites attacked the southern towns of Judah, pillaging farms and taking captives. Ahaz lost control of the port city of Elath on the Red Sea, as well as some other nearby lands. Then the Philistines invaded the hilly country of western Judah, taking key strategic cities and effectively shrinking the nation of Judah by a third. Remember that Judah's predicament was not a random occurrence in the rise and fall of nations, but rather a result of Almighty God's direct intervention. Ahaz had refused to follow God's commandments. Instead, following after the ghastly practices of the pagan Canaanites, his unrighteous leadership brought curses not only on himself, but also on the nation he led. Because of Ahaz's stubborn refusal to submit to God's rule in his personal life, the entire nation suffered. After losing substantial territory to the Edomites and Philistines, King Ahaz worried about how he could afford to run the kingdom. The situation became more distressing when rumors reached the royal palace that Israel and Syria were planning to combine their armies and march on Jerusalem. Before long, hundreds of caravans of Jews were seen making their way up to Jerusalem to seek refuge from the impending invasion. With the army already depleted, Ahaz feared it might be the end of Judah. God summoned his prophet Isaiah to deliver a message to Ahaz. Go with your sons and meet Ahaz in the north of the city. God told Isaiah, I need you to reassure him that I will take care of the two evil upstarts, Pekah and Rezaz. They are like two smoldering stumps on a campfire and are about to burn out. Also tell Ahaz. God continued, 
that I know what they intend to do. These men want to remove him from the throne of David and to set up the son of Tabia as king, a man who is willing to join their confederacy. But their plan will not stand, neither will it come to pass. Isaiah hastened to set up a meeting with Ahaz. He eagerly told the king about the threat against the nation and about God's promise to deliver the Jews out of the hand of the wicked kings. The Jewish king, however, had little respect for the words of the prophet. He was not familiar with relying on God for protection in times of trouble. He had not been obedient to God and had never exercised faith in smaller areas of his life. Rather than accepting God's protection, Ahaz had another plan in mind. Faced with the impending siege of Jerusalem, Ahaz chose to rely on men for protection. The king convened a meeting of his closest advisors in his throne room. I'm not going to rely on God to protect our nation, he started off. What good has God ever done for us anyway? I know what we will do. If Pekah and Rezin want us to join them against the Assyrians, I think it's time we join with the Assyrians against them. Some of the elders murmured among themselves, unsure that this was the best decision. Don't you think it would be wise just to concede to the demands of Syria and Israel like all the other kingdoms around us? Asked one of the advisors. Nonsense, quipped the king. The decision is final. If you want to join with our neighbors, you are welcome to leave the city at once. The advisor who had spoken up lowered his head in concession. With that, the meeting adjourned. Ahaz strode down the palace steps toward the temple, his scribe and treasurer following closely behind. During biblical times, the temple enclosure was not only a place of worship, but also where the treasure of Israel was kept. The hoard of gold and silver, much of it from the tithes of the people, was meant to pay for proper temple worship, including sacrifices and maintenance, as well as extra funds to use for development in the country. Since Ahaz had all but ended proper temple worship, the remaining gold and silver from his father's rule was still there. Ahaz stared for a moment at the final room of the treasury containing silver and gold. Use all of it, he commanded the treasurer. It's not that much, but hopefully it will do. Looking toward his scribe, Ahaz then dictated, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. They are nothing before your mighty hand. Please accept the accompanying gift as a token of my appreciation for your help. King Ahaz of Judah. Once the scribe finished recording the message, 
The scroll was sealed with Ahaz's signet and placed in the hand of the royal messenger. The rider was dispatched in the dark of night to ride to Nineveh with the message. The event of King Ahaz of Judah giving tribute of gold and silver to Tiglath-Pileser III is attested to in a clay inscription describing the military conquest of the Assyrian king discovered in Assyria. The inscription is currently on display at the British Museum in London, England. Only a couple of weeks passed before King Ahaz received troubling news. The mighty Assyrian army was crossing the Euphrates, heading south toward Damascus. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.